Welcome to The Foundry, where leaders are forged daily. Each week, we investigate themes of leadership, entrepreneurship, and mindset with some of the greatest minds in real estate. And now, the data scientist of real estate, George Roberts. Welcome back, entrepreneurs. Today we have Alex Kogan, founder and president of Ashland Capital. Welcome to the show, Alex. Hey, George. Well, you built a custom home construction business from the ground up in uh, Durango, Colorado in 1988. And I understand you started from holding the hammer as a carpenter all the way up to building the systems that you had to put in place such that you could eventually walk away to a really nice exit and liquidity event. I'd like to start by asking you, uh, what did it take to, to go from the mindset of, hey, I'm going to build custom homes to turning it into a, a real business with a future, something that you could sell and leave a legacy behind? Sure. Well, there's a lot to unpack there. Uh, so Full, I would never call myself a, a carpenter. I mean, I, I certainly started wearing my bags for about the first year when my company was myself, another guy, it's just the two of us, and started building custom homes. But it was a span of over 20 years, 98 actually, when I started my company. It was, it was, it was a really interesting journey. Really, there was no plan. It was a lot of reaction. It was a lot of growth. I mean, ultimately I wanted to build a company, but how do you fill in the dots and know what to do and when to do it? For me, that was really just figuring it out, surrounding myself with, with good people. You know, I, as I said, I started out wearing my bags um, with another guy and quickly the company just took off. And I had the good fortune of doubling in size every year. So there was just no possible way that I could continue doing carpentry. It was, uh, and that's not what I wanted to do. I, um, I knew that I wanted to build a company. So started hiring people and surrounding myself with the best possible team that I could find. Um, starting out with, uh, started out with outsourcing a bookkeeper and then added on a CEO that happens to still with me in Ashland Capital that evolved from the original company that I sold 18 years later now, he's still with me, to great project managers. We ended up vertically integrating. So then we hired architects, interior designers, construction crew, you know, and over 20 years really grew to a full service, fully vertically integrated company. So I'll stop there. See if you have any Fair other. enough. Yeah. So just wondering about the mindset growth that went along with that. I know in the past you've described yourself as a natural entrepreneur, somebody who just jumps in there and figures it out. So was, was that the case or was there sort of an evolution or a growth of you as a person, as you went from holding the hammer to really holding the reins of the company? Yeah, that that that's a great question. Uh, I was actually on a on a podcast earlier today, and that whole topic came up. And I was asked, you know, what what kind of mindset did it take for you to do what you did, and how did how did you do it? You know, I owe a lot of credit to my family and and the way I was brought up and and raised, and and the examples that I saw. And that was, you know, my parents were entrepreneurs, so I didn't grow up in a corporate environment. I only saw hustle, grind. And uh, my parents, you know, in their own businesses, my dad was a builder, developer, and, and that just left a very, very strong impression in me. In fact, 
my parents and my and I, we were born in Kiev in Ukraine and came over when I was six years old. So I watched my dad at the age of 45 give up very, very high position and an incredibly, you know, privileged life in um in Russia. We were living in Moscow uh, until I was six years old, but born, born in Kiev, all to provide opportunities for my brother and I. And so I've watched them basically go from the top to my dad's first job at 45 years old is washing toilets at a Lincoln Mercury dealership. And then I watched him, you know, build his businesses and companies over the years and just become very successful. So I, that was the example I had. So I had this attitude of, I'm not going to take no for an answer. I'm going to figure out a way. If I can't figure out, I'm going to find someone that's going to help me figure it out. So it's a lot of grit and just, you know, not taking no for an answer and really having, you know, no fear. I mean, I think that's really, I've had, you know, I joke around and call it just kind of a, a blind confidence, which is not having fear. So I, I think I can do a lot. And what's the worst thing that could happen? I fail, which is to me is not a big fear. And fortunately, I've, you know, there's been bumps along the road, but for the most part, it's been, it's been steadily up and had lots of success. And and most importantly, enjoyed the ride of being an entrepreneur and being in charge of my own destiny. Yeah, very exciting. And you could say that around 2019, that's when you sold your construction company, Cogan Builders, that you'd already sort of reached the pinnacle of real estate, which is to produce new real estate. But something drew you to the idea of purchasing existing assets and taking a different approach. So what was that? Well, that actually started shortly after I founded my company in 98. So there was, backing up just to give you a better context, there was the high-end construction company that I started and, and that took off. Shortly thereafter, we had a second vertical of the company where we did small multifamily development. We did some mixed use, some condos, some townhomes, we did some subdivisions. So that was another vertical of the company where we actually developed real estate. Some was to hold for rent, some was uh, developed uh, to sell. And in 2017, by that point, I amassed a, a really nice portfolio. The company had grown to be the other two verticals, you know, good size. And two years prior to that, 2015, uh, my wife and I had our had our had our only child. Or I was about to say our first child, our first and only. And we decided to move back to Chicago, where I'm from. So that was a pivotal moment. That's, that's why I tell that story that in 2017, I sold off all of my small assets and I started preparing Kogan Builders and the development company for sale. But at that point, I sold off the small, the large portfolio of small assets and started buying larger institutional quality assets. So it was about 17, 18, where I started buying 100 plus unit apartments, purpose-built student housing, uh, and that was really the transition. So uh, I had a management team that ran the, the company in, in Colorado. I was already in, in Chicago, really building, you know, Ashland Capital, of what, what, what it evolved into and what it is today. And then, as you mentioned, in, in 19, I officially sold the other uh, company and just, you know, got, got more liquidity, bought more, and then, and then you know, the, the natural progression Everybody wanted to co-invest, friends and family, and then it just kept growing. And here we are today. Exactly. So, okay, so let's take us up to the present. That's 
literally a quarter century in real estate. And that's a huge accomplishment, especially in a field that's attracted a lot of newbies, especially with all of the washouts that happened during the Great Recession. So what can you tell us about the importance of having weathered multiple real estate markets in your career? Yeah, well, I don't know. Some of it is luck. <laughs> Certainly, I think, you know, I didn't do stupid things. I, I would say maybe that's the most important. I didn't do stupid things. I'm not sure I, I was the smartest guy in the business, but, you know, I didn't get over leveraged. I've always lived under my means. I've always had a significant amount of, of capital that was sitting around for a rainy day or an opportunity. And so I've always taken, for me, you know, 23 years now, 24 almost, it's been a slow progression and growth. And I think that's, for me, that's worked. I think, you know, what I see today, given the last five years, guys who want to go from zero to a hundred in no time, it's all about scale. It's all about, you know, go to a boot camp, get the right mindset and then go and then jump in and do it. That's what I hear from a lot of syndication mentors and coaches and boot camps and, and all this stuff. And I actually think that's dangerous. And I, I don't want that to be taken out of context. You shouldn't, mm -hmm. you shouldn't have ambition and want to do it because clearly I did and jumped in. But I think you have to have calculated risk. You can't get over your skis. I don't believe people should take other people's money before they're 100% focused and full-time in the business. I think there's a lot of don't get me wrong. There's guys who are transitioning to the business. They have a W-2 job. They're raising capital, but they're not the lead sponsor. I see too many guys who took a boot camp, have a W-2 job, trying to take down a $25 million deal, taking in capital, and, and they're not even full-time in the business and don't have that much experience. That's a recipe for disaster, and I think that's all going to shake out in this next cycle of, you know, when money is not cheap and we're in a tougher economy and cap rates have gone up. So that that's going to shake out that. So I'm not sure if I answered your question, but. Perfectly, I think. And, and you've brought a lot of very important points in there. You have not only a lot of experience in real estate, but you also developed a deeper understanding in finance and all of these things, I think, are things that you would probably credit to your success. Uh, maybe most importantly, I loved your comment about how not doing something stupid. I mean, Finance is really a space where I think there are a lot of brilliant people who have gone so far and then blown up and living to fight another day. That's very important. Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. I think people have taken a lot of risk in the last cycle. And I think that's all, all going to reveal itself, <laughs> you know, and, and I, the words of my CFO of 18 years always ring true. He says, pigs get fat and hogs get slaughtered. Yes. And every opportunity, I always look, you know, I'm much more of a risk taker than my C CFO. That's why we're a good compliment. Right. Uh, so I always, you know, want to look at opportunities and he always reminds me and I've, I've in 18 years, I've rarely disagreed with him on anything material, you know, so it's worked. Right, so this is also your CFO from Kogan Builders. So he stayed a couple of years with the company left and then joined you again as a CFO in Ashland, correct? That's right. That's Great. exactly right. Reminds me of one of my favorite quotes 
from Warren Buffett, uh, what you were saying a minute ago about how things are going to shake out. Well, absolutely. Uh, it's it's not until the tide goes out that you figure out who's been swimming without trunks. <laughs> That's right. A couple of variations of that same expression, but yeah. <laughs> that that might have been the cleaner version, but uh, <laughs> okay. So uh, I'd like to learn more about partnering with Alex Kogan. So you mentioned a couple of things that are important to you. You'd like to see people who have dedicated themselves full time. I know also in the past you've mentioned you want people who are finance savvy. I mean, don't just walk in here thinking that you can take down say a twenty five million dollar project because you you know you did a boot camp. So what are some things that you're looking for? Who are you sort of looking to partner with? What would be the ideal outcome of today's podcast? Who are you looking to reach out to? Who should reach out to you? Yeah, great great question, George. So, you know, we will partner in what I would call a couple of different capacities. So I think you know that I've served as a key principal mm -hmm. for newer sponsors that are, that are getting in the business, don't have the net worth and liquidity need mentorship, need the loan guarantor net worth liquidity. So I'll do that on occasion, but it's got to be somebody that that I really have a lot of conviction in. They could be newer to the business, but they've got to they got to be sharp. They've got to be committed. And I got to like the deal, but I really have to like them first and 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 know that they're they're not flaky. They're going to do what they say they're going to do. There's integrity, honesty, et cetera. And then I'm willing to do that and help them grow and help mentor them along the way and fill in the gaps where they may have some, some holes. So that, that's one, that's a small portion of sort of my focus in business. Obviously, we're always raising capital for deals. We just got something under contract in Phoenix, a really cool BTR built to rent single family community. So of course, if anybody's looking to invest, we always want to partner with limited partners. That's a natural we do conventional multifamily, as you know, purpose-built student housing, and we'll likely um, you know, close on this asset in, in Phoenix as well. That's a build-to-rent single-family. And then the, the second, or I should say, yeah, the second sort of partnership that we always look for is you know, maybe somebody that is a one-man show, maybe a two-man show that they've been doing smaller deals, but they really want to do larger deals. We'll bring in partners that can raise capital, help us on other tasks because they can't just raise capital. In that capacity, we'll bring in partners uh, that can help us take down larger deals. But same thing, you know, I look for guys that are committed, you can count on, know what they're doing, maybe just need to get to that next level of buying a 25, a 40, $50 million deal that they couldn't do on their own, have their own network, can raise capital and help us scale that way as well. So we'll we'll do that occasionally. Great. And that's actually the next thing I wanted to talk to you about was the power of partnership and mentorship. So here's one of your quotes, uh, a little blast from the past, that uh, when you part with people, you get exposure to more markets, more wins, right? I mean, if you're just in six markets, that's a really small data set. And since you learn more from your, I guess, from your issues than from your wins, that's really, uh, that, that's huge. So, so tell us about how that developed and where that's taking you in your business. Yeah. So I think for us, if, if they're, let's just say, George, you know, you're, you're, you have an opportunity in your hometown, you find something, you know, the sub market, you found something off market and you come to me and say, Hey, you know, I really like this. 
I don't have the horsepower to take it down. I'd like to partner with you. That seems to be a natural fit. For one, I wouldn't have known about your submarket. I wouldn't have found that opportunity. But you know, we can get our arms around an opportunity quickly and basically underwrite it, do all the diligence and say, hey, George, you, you're right. This is a really nice opportunity. Or here's a couple of issues and holes. Let's, let's look at those. Let's see if we can get comfortable. And so again, otherwise, I wouldn't have learned about that, that market. We're not looking to spread ourselves too thin across the whole country, but markets change and we want to be able to leverage somebody who's local to find that opportunity. And that's worked really well for us. So excellent. I know the same thing has happened to me as I have people sending me deals. I'm learning about markets that I would have never heard about looking, uh, not going to name them all because some of them are pretty small and some of these things are still ongoing, but I mean, it's just, it just blows my mind. Local knowledge, it's something that just can't be replaced. You can analyze all day, but nothing like that local, local knowledge. Absolutely. Totally agree. So I'd love to ask you about underwriting your deals, especially because this is a time of rapid financial change. We had a lot of stasis. I mean, we had the market going literally monotonically up for well over a decade. We had rates that were low and steady. And I think that led to that sort of go-go era that you referenced earlier, where you have the gurus saying, hey, just get out there, do a deal, you know, start today, quit your job. Well, <laughs> I'd like to hear about how you're underwriting deals today, what sort of challenges are caused by the market and what you're doing to surmount those hurdles. Sure. I mean, we'll start with the obvious uh, or, or the obvious two dynamics, which is interest rates are where they are. They're high. So that makes it harder. And as, as a result of that, you have sellers that are looking for yesterday's pricing. And you have buyers like me that are looking for today's pricing. So that, that's, a, that's a gap. That gap is, is closing in. It's closing in on the sellers that need to sell or want to sell, but they have to have some motivation. If a seller is just sort of testing the market and saying, hey, I got a, a great interest rate. I've got five years left in my loan. Let me see you know, kind of what the market's doing. The market's going to tell you not to sell. You're not, I mean, it would make no sense. We are not sellers in, in this market. We're buyers. So I've got to find the sellers that have some motivation that will sell at today's cap rate, which is based on you know, today's debt environment primarily. That's kind of the easy one to, to get, get your head around. Again, we're finding like the deal I mentioned in, in Phoenix that uh, we got an off-market opportunity. It was a typical scenario. New sponsor, spinoff from a larger company. They were buying this deal in, in stages. It was getting delivered from the original developer. The delivery time got extended. They had bridge debt, floating rate debt. The whole transaction uh, stretched out and their, their debt service went from X to X times three. So they're under the gun and their, and their loan is maturing. So they have motivation. So we were able to buy that at a good basis. And I could underwrite to today's rates, fixed rate debt, not floating rate debt, of course. And I can make reasonable assumptions. So am I going to assume that the the Phoenix market's going to continue to go up 15, 20% year over year. Absolutely not. You know, the most that I would do is 3% a year. And, and, and the sub market, not the entire MSA, the sub market has to support it. So that's the way we look at everything in terms of very granular in terms of sub market. We mystery shop 
you know, all, all the comps. We look at what are they doing? What aren't they doing? What's their, you know, what's their occupancy? Um, what's, what's the, you know, what are the drivers? So we get pretty hands-on and understanding all those dynamics. The other thing that we're really super conscious of right now is OPEX costs. Insurance is through the roof. We're closing on a deal at LSU in about 30 days. The deal almost blew up over the insurance costs. We had we underwrote to, I forget the exact percentage, but I want to say it's like 15 to 20% above their T12 insurance. We got a quote that was almost 2x of what they're paying. And that would have blown up the deal. Finally, our insurance agent came through and um, the number came in a lot better than initially, but it was higher. We the the seller needed to sell again their motivation their fund is closing down and they were willing to be flexible on price and had a major retrade to make the numbers work for us so i think that that's what it takes in today's environment is really dialing in your costs and um and sellers who have to sell are sympathetic to it they get it they've been on the buy side they know that if your insurance goes up that much it's a math problem it's not emotional right like insurance, taxes, your, your, your two largest expenses. So taxes as well. We always hire a third-party tax consultant to assess the taxes, where are they going to go? We get a best case, worst case, and a probable in terms of taxes. We don't guess. We don't just you know, tr- try to gamble on where we think it'll go. We get a professional to give us that assessment. Right. That's, I think, one of the reasons why you're going for the larger deals, because you can support that for a larger deal, a lot easier than say 20 or 30 units. If you're yes. buying 100, 200, 300 units, that dollar cost of that tax consultant, I'm sure is very trivial compared to the information that you're likely to get. It's it's trivial unless you can't, unless you don't close on the deal. Which, <clears throat> I, I mean, the same sure. sort of dynamic. We had a deal, I had $75,000 in for due diligence costs and I found things I didn't like, we terminated without hesitation. Right. I'm not going to put good money after bad. So uh, it works both ways. It becomes trivial when you're closing. It becomes less trivial if you, if you can't close the deal. So as a builder, you are looking in some places that other people may not be looking, looking at the mechanicals with a different set of eyes. What are some things that you might be looking at that maybe somebody without your background should be but isn't? You know, we do look, we look at a lot of, I mean, you know, the cosmetic stuff is easy, right? You know, it needs pain. It needs, def, you know, there's deferred maintenance. I look at, you know, clues that there's a greater issue. So is there evidence of, you know, grading and drainage issues that need to be resolved? Is there evidence of foundational cracking as a result of grading and drainage? We look at mechanicals. Are they, a lot of mechanicals that you see I mean, I even see the newer construction that were not piped correctly are causing mold issues, uh, leaking, drywall damage. So I'm always, I'm kind of like on the hunt to find those clues. What could be a future problem? I mean, those are just, you know, a handful of the things that that we look at, but I'm only one set of eyes. We're going to have a very thorough inspection. We're going to have roofing contractors, mechanical contractors. We're going to have a a third-party property management group that's going to inspect every single unit, document it with with photos. And not only can you pick up everything that's going to reveal itself, but you also have great documentation in case you need to retrade. Because Mm -hmm. by the time we're done 
inspecting and doing due diligence on a property, I'm pretty sure we know it generally better, at least the physical component, than the sellers. And we have that data and backup and say, hey, here's what you got. Either you're going to sell to me based on this type of retrade, or you're going to have to spend that money. But here's the documentation. Right. Well, let's talk a little bit more about underwriting. And here, as a data scientist, I'm always interested in the story behind the numbers and how you tease that out. So the best deals are the ones where, you know, the buyer is seeing something that maybe neither the broker nor maybe even the seller truly sees. How do you go about finding that story behind the numbers? And uh, what maybe you can tell us, if you would, uh, some of the more creative things that you've done to really squeeze out the last dollar in terms of asset management? Sure. I mean, I'll, I guess I'll point to one example that kind of pops to the top of my head. We bought a really nice deal. It's a 2016 vintage in Des Moines, Iowa, uh, 165 doors uh, a couple of years ago. And what we noticed that they had a really, really large loss to lease and concessions. So we started digging. We liked the asset. We, we didn't like the price right away, but we love the asset. What we realized was that since we're the developer, so once they developed it, they found themselves in this constant pattern um, of dealing with clustered leases. So they leased up a bunch of their stuff in the summer. Every summer, those leases came to renewal and they found themselves throwing lots of dollars at concessions and, and having to you know, be very, very, because you know, you, if you have 165 doors and you have 100 leases coming due in, in three months, that's a horrible situation to be in. Mm -hmm. So we underwrote to that and we underwrote to on a go forward basis to spread those leases out. We also brought in um, a really, a really good third party property manager that used, uh, they still use like uh, the name escapes me, but basically a, a, a software that goes out to the market and surveys rents on a daily basis. So we can figure out what, you know, in real time, what to charge for two bedrooms versus one bedrooms, uh, Yieldstar finally came to me. Mm -hmm. So they started um, using Yieldstar. So long story short, we were able to even out the leases over the first year of ownership, use Yieldstar to maximize when we could get, you know, premiums on, on, on the rent and performing extremely well and able to raise our NOI because of, of burning off those huge concessions and lost the lease. So, and, and that's that's a pretty typical scenario for new builds, for, for lease-ups. So we, we like that model. If we can find developers that have owned assets for a couple of years, they, they probably still have a lot of that going on. Yeah, interesting. 